Hello and welcome to the sixth installment of The Vinyl Approach. My name is Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. I use The Vinyl Approach to discuss specific things that interest me about musicians and their records. Earlier this month, on March 8th, we celebrated International Women's Day. As my daughter noted with dripping sarcasm, gee, a whole day. So true. So in the spirit of savoring and extending the moment, I want to discuss a few women who have made a major impact on my musical life. I will stress here and again later, this is a partial list. In the early 1970s, I would scour through cutout racks of eight-track tapes. Cutout racks are places where albums go to die when it becomes clear to the label that a recent release is not going to sell many copies. The record company tries to recoup at least some of their money by offering these fairly new records at discounted price. Many of us filled out our collections at the trough of the cutout. The 8-track bin was especially tempting because these tapes were dead cheap, even less expensive than the cutout albums, and I could play tapes in the car. But today's show isn't about 8-track tapes, tempting as that may sound. It's about women musicians who were, and remain, important to me. Joan Baez was one artist whose tapes I bought and got to know while driving the mean streets of Des Moines, Iowa. It was her album, or rather the 8-track tape of her album, One Day at a Time, that stood out. This album is from a time when Joan had been left behind in some ways. Dylan had gone electric and was writing surrealistic lyric landscapes. By the time Joan recorded One Day at a Time in 1969, Bob had done these things and more. Most recently, Dylan had released a country music album called Nashville Skyline. Now Joan Baez was testing these country waters, recording country-tinged sessions in Nashville. The first was David's album, dedicated to her then-husband. Next came One Day at a Time, a continuation of Baez's flirtation with country. The album worked, at least aesthetically. I don't know how well it sold. That I grabbed it from a cutout bin is not a good sign, but One Day at a Time was a pleasant album, with Baez's strong voice backed by some of Nashville's A-team musicians. I played it a lot. Song choices were unexpected. The album's title track was written by Willie Nelson prior to his crossover fame. Take Me Back to the Sweet Sunny South is here, as is a different type of surprise, the Rolling Stones' No Expectations from their then-recent Beggar's Banquet album. This Stones song fits well beside the traditional material, such as Jolie Blonde. I liked the whole album, but it was Joan's recording of Long Black Veil that really caught my attention. This is a murder ballad in the true sense of the term, a story song recounting the execution of a man innocent of the murder he is charged with, but guilty of hidden betrayal. When I saw Bob Dylan in 1974, the band played this song during a solo set. I wasn't hip enough to know that the band did this tune on their Music from Big Pink album, so their performance of The Long Black Veil that night came as an unexpected bonus. I discovered Long Black Veil through the Joan Baez 8-track, which led to a deepening appreciation for the band. Later, I learned that the song had been a big hit on the country charts in 1959 for the great Lefty Frizzell and this knowledge would lead me down a traditionalist's rabbit hole that resulted in my purchase of a 12-CD set of Lefty Frizzell's complete works. Blame Joan. The other of her songs I want to mention comes from the 1963 album In Concert Part 2. It's my favorite of Baez's solo acoustic records. 
Late in the program, she performs the plaintive Three Fishers, a song about grieving wives who lose their husbands to the sea. Upbeat stuff, I know. But the melody, the song's unusual chord changes, the lyrics, everything clicks for me on this lament. When I attended a Joan Baez concert in 1979, I waited for the appropriate moment between songs and shouted, Three Fishers! No reaction from performer or audience. After she finished tuning for her next number, Baez said, Boy, you've got a good memory. She did not play the song. By the way, on my resume, I used to list this exchange as my interview with Joan Baez. We continue with the International Women's Day episode of The Vinyl Approach. I'm trying to remember when I first learned of Joni Mitchell. Probably when I heard Judy Collins' hit recording of Both Sides Now on the radio in 1968. My obsession with the Beatles and then with Bob Dylan had taught me that there was often a difference between songwriters and performers. That is, singers did not always write their own material. I knew that Collins had not written this hit song, but that was not uncommon. Both Sides Now caught my ear as the great record it is, but it wasn't until Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young later had a hit with Woodstock that I really began to investigate the songwriter. I think what sparked my interest was when a friend told me that he had heard Joni Mitchell's own version of Woodstock on our underground radio station, and that Mitchell's version was very different from the radio hit. He said it with a bit of disdain. My friend worshipped Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, so it didn't surprise me that he preferred their record, no matter how Joni handled her own song. I searched it out. In the days before computers, with not a lot of money to spend, just hearing a song could be a challenge. When I finally encountered Joni's Woodstock, I was haunted by her sparse piano arrangement. Plus, I could hear the lyrics more clearly, words that depicted excitement and regret about the festival and its generation. I was now taken with Joni Mitchell as an artist and started buying her albums. I was especially struck by the first one, Song for a Seagull and For the Roses. I liked all of her records, but nothing could touch the consistent power of the Blue Album. Song after song, stark emotions set to memorable melodies. Is Blue a woman's album? I don't know. As a guy, I thought I connected a lot with it, even though subject matter included giving up the child of an unplanned pregnancy and a female perspective on failed or at least difficult relationships. As much as I may like many of Joni Mitchell's records, Blue stands apart. Maybe it's not better than all the others, but come to think of it, maybe it is. I was fortunate to be able to see Joni Mitchell when she toured after releasing Court and Spark in 1974, and again a few years later with her jazz group. Court and Spark was an important album as it gave her a top 10 hit with the song Help Me. This radio presence helped solidify Mitchell's mainstream popularity, not just as a songwriter, but now as a performer. But Joni Mitchell seemed uncomfortable with success and soon tried to undermine it. Like fellow Canadian Neil Young after having commercial success with his Harvest album. Later, Young would famously say that he wanted to avoid the middle of the road and head for the ditch. With follow-up albums like Journey Through the Past and Time Fades Away, Neil had no problem in distancing himself from the mainstream. After the success of Court and Spark, Joni Mitchell's next studio album was the very challenging Hissing of Summer Lawns. I know people who love this record, but I see it as her Graceland album, except not as good. But then all was forgiven with the release of Hegira, where Mitchell successfully married jazz to her own inventive approach to music. If there were any doubts about Joni's sustained talent, the Hegira album put them to rest. 
Strong songs, interesting arrangements, great musicians. I wore that album out. Then came Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, a two-record set that sounded like outtakes from the Hajira sessions. Still good, but definitely a step down. Then the wheels came off. In June of 1979, Joni Mitchell released an album simply called Mingus, honoring one of the great bass players in jazz history who had died earlier that year. Mingus wanted to be a jazz album, or a Joni Mitchell version of a jazz album. Actually, I'm not sure what it wanted to be. But aside from a few isolated selections, I find Mingus difficult to get through. Clips of dialogue never help a record, and they don't help here, even when spoken by Charles Mingus himself. I respect what Joni Mitchell was doing with the Mingus album. It was a bold musical experiment. But not all experiments work. Just ask Ian Anderson if he plans an anniversary tour of Jethro Tull's Passion Play project. And there is a reason that Atlantic chose not to include Aretha Franklin's disco records in its recent box set that claims to be her complete works for the label. God bless innovation, and God bless Aretha Franklin. But sometimes an artist's intended results fail to materialize. When Mingus was released in the summer of 1979, I was working at a rarity, a radio station that played only jazz. The record company sent several promo copies of Mingus to us, but we had trouble finding a spot where this music fit, even on a jazz station. That fall, Joni hit the road to promote the record. I was able to catch the tour in Minneapolis, and the concert was great. Jaco Pistorius, Michael Brecker, Pat Metheny, they made Joni's songs swing and rock, and there were no spoken interludes. This was the way to experience the Mingus album. Fortunately, there is a live album and a video from the tour called Shadows and Light. But even in a good setting, Mitchell's new music had changed too drastically for some fans. Favorites from the earlier albums had been permanently retired. Now Joni was a jazzer. During this era, and even afterwards, Mitchell seemed to find many of her old themes uninteresting. She began to compose wordy diatribes, songs with titles like the three great stimulants of the exhausted ones. What? For me, the nadir of Joni Mitchell's creativity came with the 1985 song that recounts the singer's frustration with a cigarette machine that was out of her brand. It's called Smokin', Empty, Try Another. And the circle game it ain't. And by the way, since I'm sure you are wondering, Joni's lyrics tell us that the three great stimulants of the exhausted ones are artifice, brutality, and innocence. Of course, now I get it. I closed this International Women's Day edition of the Vinyl Approach with another favorite group, the Roaches. In 1980, I was in a music slump. That seems ridiculous in hindsight, but I wasn't super excited about any new music I was hearing. Enter the Roaches and Talking Heads. David Byrne and company had been around for a while, and I had always liked them okay, but when Remain in Light was issued, it was a new dawn. I feel it's okay to mention Talking Heads today, since they had a female bass player in Tina Weymouth. I saw the heads when Tina was eight months pregnant. She managed to play bass by holding it sideways against her right hip all night. A trooper. I was invigorated and intrigued by the dense constructs of Talking Heads, but also by the sparse, acoustic guitar trio of sisters calling themselves the Roaches and they came by that name honestly. Roach was their real last name. A perfect punk name for a group. And punk they were, but not in the same way that the Raincoats were punk, and not like early Bangles and Go-Go's, who had songs like Johnny Are You Queer. No, the Roaches didn't have the electric intensity of earlier punk bands, but their lyrics could be just as in-your-face. 
In the song Damned Old Dog, Maggie Roach envies her pet. She wishes her desire for an unfaithful lover could be quenched by having the heat cut out of her. In less vivid lyrics, similar themes are addressed in The Married Men, a Roach song that almost went mainstream. Linda Ronstadt and Phoebe Snow sang it on Saturday Night Live. King Crimson's Robert Fripp produced the Roach's first album. The sisters said they had no idea who Fripp was when he came backstage to introduce himself. To his credit, the recording of this album is uncluttered, and Fripp takes a single guitar solo on the sublime Hammond song. Sadly, as much as I loved them, and I did, the group was not able to sustain the quality of this first album or to hold on to its audience. When the second record was released, called Nerds, I wanted to like it, but there are few reasons to embrace these songs. The harmonies are still in place, but they no longer seem fresh. Most problematic, though, was with only scattered exceptions, their new material was not memorable. A couple of strong songs can be found on Nerds, including One Season and This Feminine Position. But the sisters were too often trading quality for cute, with titles like The Death of Suzzy Roach and My Sick Mind. To promote Nerds, the Roaches appeared on NBC's Later with Tom Snyder. It didn't go well. More than once, it looked like Snyder was close to ending the interview. He asked Maggie to stop staring into the TV monitor while he tried to deal with their non-sequitur and borderline hostile answers. Snyder is won over, though, when the sisters sing an a cappella version of Cole Porter's It's Bad For Me. But the damage has been done. Too weird for the room, or even for late-night network TV. The record label representative I later spoke to was livid about how the sisters had handled themselves. Warner Brothers had high hopes for the Roaches, but I have recently read how they could not agree with any promotional ideas the label had for them. So the sisters did nothing, and their moment passed. And I admit that it also passed for me. I bought the album after Nerds, called Keep On Doin', but I found this third outing even less interesting. It included their concert favorite, the Hallelujah Chorus, and a couple of novelty numbers like The Biggest Elizabeth in the World, but none of this could make up for a lack of strong original songs. I loved the Roaches, and I still love that debut album, but I had to let them go. They would continue to sporadically release records on increasingly small labels, but with the exception of a surprisingly traditional 2009 Christmas project called We Three Kings, I found each new album to be an example of unrealized potential. Early publicity material told how the sisters once sang Christmas carols on New York City street corners. The Roaches released albums through 2007, but for me, We Three Kings brings the group full circle and makes a better stopping place. Like Tom Snyder, I like the Roaches best when they add their harmonies to strong songs. And with that, we come to the end of this episode celebrating International Women's Day. I have discussed fewer bands and performers than originally planned, Others on my short list for today were Patsy Cline, Vixen, Alison Krauss, Janice, A Taste of Honey, Grace, Sharon Isbin, The Slits, Grace Kelly, not the actress, Carol King, Dolly, Donna Summer, Sheila E., Aretha, and Trish Keenan. What this means is that there will be another show dedicated to the topic of important women musicians, or at least important to me, and I won't wait a full year to do it. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and this has been The Vinyl Approach. If you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. It's available on Amazon. Join me next time in two weeks when we will talk about John Lennon. He was a Beatle.